Well, this wasn't my original sermon at the beginning of the week. But I began to work on something as I began to think about a number of issues within the church. And it's, I'm not sure how many of you have ever seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You're probably wondering why I'm bringing that up. But I was thinking a lot about that as I was working on this sermon. And for those who have seen that movie, there's actually a scene between two nights. And you might recall, if you've seen that, that at one point he actually gets, well, he actually gets both his legs and his arms cut off. But after his arm is cut off in this battle, at one point he says, it's just a flesh wound. And you may wonder why I was thinking about that as I was preparing this sermon. And the reason was, is this guy had a mortal wound, and yet he refused to acknowledge the truth. It was kind of like, if I just act like it didn't happen, maybe it will go away. And so then I began to think a lot about, really, the church. And so I want to talk today for a little bit about the truth about the church and its issues. And as I say that, I want to focus on, really, the church at first, because the church is glorious and amazing. And there's no doubt about that. And yet we also understand that the church does have issues. The reason we have issues is because we are comprised of imperfect people. We're not perfect, although the church is, and we oftentimes make mistakes. And so this morning what I want to do is spend a little bit of time talking about uh, regarding those issues and also the solutions. But let's start off with the facts about the church. I don't think anybody really wants to hear a completely negative sermon. And certainly when you begin to talk about the church, you shouldn't start off with those things that are negative. You need to start off with those things which are positive. Again, the church is glorious. It is Amazing, and the church will never, ever, ever be completely destroyed from the face of this earth. The church will always exist. Now, many of you are familiar with Daniel 2, verse 44. I'll try not to add too many by memory, other than what's on your outlines. If you're here and you're uh, not familiar with how we do things, there is an outline, and that will pretty much help lead you through the sermon. But I will add stuff from memory as I go. But we find out prophesied... From the very beginning, as a matter of fact, in uh, Genesis 3.15, which isn't on your outline, you have the very first prophecy regarding Christ, okay, and the fact that there was going to be this kingdom. But in Daniel 2.44, it says this, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel clearly prophesied that there would be a kingdom. The kingdom will always exist. It will always be glorious. It will always be amazing. Now, we also have recorded a number of times where this prophecy was fulfilled in our New Testament. I'm only going to give you one of those. That's in Hebrews 12, 28. It says, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace and whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So we see from Hebrews that the kingdom was fulfilled. Now, as we talk about the church, and certainly we know that the kingdom is the church. That's Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Okay, I guess I'm going to add some more on the fly as I go. That's not in your passage either. But the kingdom is the church, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And we know that it was present in the first century. Matthew 16, 28. You'll recall where Jesus said, There be some standing here today which shall not taste of death until they see my kingdom come with power. Now, that was from memory, so that one's not in your passage or your verses either. 
But the point is simply this. The kingdom was the church. The church had been prophesied. The church came into existence. Now, as we talk about the fact that the church is glorious and amazing and it's never going to um, go away, we need to understand that it can't be destroyed because it's continued and perpetuated by a continual seed. I guess I will add another one. Luke 8, 11. I try to stick to it. But Luke 8, 11. Luke 8, 11 is talking about the seed being the word of God. And we see that in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. Notice again why the church is never going to cease to exist. 1 Peter 1, 23 says this, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, comma. Well, what's that? He says, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So the word of God is going to always continue, and it has to because for the church to continue, we have to have the word. Again, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Actually, the word Christ there. So the word's going to continue and so will the church. Now, though we know that the church is never going to be destroyed, here's what we need to understand before we actually get into some of the issues. Congregations are going to die. Congregations are going to lose their identity as faithful congregations. Go ahead and go over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and then we'll go to chapter 3, and then I'll move these, move on here. But I want you to follow along because, and you guys are familiar, we've spent quite a bit of time in the book of Revelation. We get descriptions, and this isn't the only place, of congregations which were dying. They were losing their identity as congregations of the Lord. Look at Revelation 2, verse 5. And we're talking about the congregation here in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That congregation's got an issue. They're slowly dying. You see another example in chapter 3. Go to verse 1. Let's look here at Sardis. Because clearly they are losing. And we actually see here that they're, they're, they're not just dying. They're losing their identity. Look in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. But be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He specifically says regarding Sardis that there were some who had remained faithful. And by that, what I can understand is, is the rest were not faithful. The congregation was slowly dying. They were losing their identity. And so this morning, I'm going to mention a few things as we talk about the truth about the church and its issues. And in such doing, we need to look at these things that if we don't have a, 
a willingness to acknowledge them. Again, go back to the movie Monty Python when his arm was cut off and he said, it's just a flesh wound. I mean, it's obvious when he looked down, it wasn't a flesh wound, guy. His arm was missing, but he wouldn't admit it. And the reason we have to look at a sermon like this is because we have things happening in the church. We see it and we want to say something like, it's just a flesh wound. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not a big deal. Let's talk about a few of these. You guys know that many congregations today are physically dying. What I mean is, is congregations getting up there in age, and many of the members are slowly passing away, and the congregation isn't converting more people to add to the body. And so uh, as the congregation loses another person, in essence what's going on is there's not another that's put in there to fill his spot. And let's be honest, many people today around us in the world, they're not interested in spiritual things. Uh, and so because of that, they're not becoming Christians. But we also have another problem, and that problem is, is we do occasionally have somebody who becomes a Christian. Uh, and oftentimes we lose ground because those who become Christians, they fall by the wayside before they even be become mature Christians. They oftentimes will come for a while, they've become a Christian, and, and then they fall away for various reasons. Sometimes they even have to be withdrawn from and here's what's even more sad is oftentimes those who have to be withdrawn from, it's not done quick enough. And because it's not done quick enough, we actually either let them get out of our grasp or they've influenced people within the congregation. And so then not only do we lose the ones that we were eventually going to withdraw from, we sometimes even lose Christians in the congregation who are influenced by the one who was causing the issue to begin with in the first place. And then oftentimes when we do actually withdraw from them, you know what we found out? They already withdrew from us and from the faith and they don't really even care. It doesn't bother them. So you might be saying, okay, so that is a problem within the churches of Christ. What's the solution? And I want you to know as I mention all these solutions, guys, the solutions aren't complicated. They're not. As I went through here and thought about them, it's not like I'm giving hard, hard problems and then giving hard, hard solutions. They're problems that we read about every week, and the solutions are very simple. We simply need to wake up to the crisis that, yeah, there are congregations that are slowly dying off, in which sin oftentimes has come in, in which new believers are falling away from, and therefore because of that they are physically diminishing in number. We just simply have to admit to that. Uh, it, many people, when you say something like that, they say, man, you're such a pessimist. I don't want to be like the guy on Monty Python who's not willing to look at the fact that my arm's missing and act like it's not happening. We need to acknowledge it is happening. But let's look at how we go about and solve the problem. Let's go to Acts 8.4. Now, this is a passage I'd say all of you are familiar with. And I want you to recall at this time, you've got persecution on the church. So remember, they're being persecuted in the face of this. And it says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, notice this, preaching the word. Okay, so this is real simple. You want more Christians? you got to tell everybody. Now, it's funny, as I was thinking about this, I immediately went back to my first year in college. And the reason is, is because I was sitting, we were having a conversation before class. There was a bunch of young men there. There weren't any females there. One of the gentlemen was complaining that he couldn't get a date. And my history professor, who was probably about 75 or 80 at the time, he came over and he said, the, the answer is so simple, and yet you don't get it course being I think we were all what 18 19 years old he said do you guys realize it's not the best looking man that gets the most dates he said it's the guy that asks the most 
He said, but with that being said, he said, here's what you need to understand. You need to have tough skin because the guy that, get at, the guy that asks the most, he gets rejected the most. What's my point? My point was what he was saying to us as young men that we couldn't comprehend was, if you want dates, you need to ask a lot of people. And then he said, but you're going to get rejected a whole bunch. But his point was, you'll also get some yeses. That's the same for Christianity. If I go out and I only tell one person a year, what's the most I could, have, I could convert in a year? One. How about if I go out and tell 20 people? What's the most I could convert in a year? 20. How many of those may tell me no? Maybe 18, maybe 20, maybe all of them. But the idea is the most I could convert is the most that I ask. It's like the fisherman that throws the net. Does he just throw the net one time? He pulls it in, and he, if he catches one or catches none, he says, what a horrible day, I'm going home. We need to be like these Christians in the first century. They were scattered abroad. They went everywhere preaching the word. It's not a hard concept. We see that going on in Thessalonica. I'm going to go to 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, notice this, but also in every place your faith to God where it is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. These guys were out preaching the word, telling everybody. Whether you're sitting in a store, whether you're sitting at someone's school, whether you're sitting at work, that ought to be on our mind. Part of it's because we need to defend the truth. With that being said, how many of you guys have ever been somewhere and you heard somebody talk, having a religious conversation of what they were saying was not true? We don't have to butt in and be a jerk and, and slam 18 verses in their face. We could simply say, hey, have you ever considered this verse and defend the truth that way? I'm thinking of Philippians 1.7 where he talks about this. He says, even as it, as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds, notice this, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... Ye are all partakers of my grace. We can give book, chapter, and verse during religious discussions without being antagonistic or fighting, and we can both defend and confirm the gospel. That's the only way we're going to convert people. And I, hopefully, just like the rest of you, am willing to admit I haven't done as good of a job this week as I should have. Right? Let's not act like when the arm's missing, it's not a problem. Let's just say it. I didn't do as good this week as I should have. And that will help us to understand and resolve the problem. Now, let's move on to another one. How about division and bitterness, which is threatening congregations? Again, we act like these things don't happen. I'm going to tell you the cause of Christ in a number of congregations in a number of cities is being disgraced by brethren who will constantly fight and bicker over not only doctrinal issues, but over non-doctrinal issues. Now, I'm not suggesting we don't take a stand over doctrinal issues. I'm suggesting we could do it in a way in which we are not bickering and fighting with one another. Right? We can sit down. How many of you guys have ever seen two engineers sit down to talk about a bridge and then bust each other in the nose and fight over it? My guess is they're going to talk logically using blueprints and engineering language, right? So we as Christians, when we sit down with a problem, we're going to use the Bible and use biblical language to work through an issue. We can't have this type of division and bitterness going on. Listen to Galatians 1.5. Paul tells the church there in Galatia, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. I mean, it's pretty logical, right? If we're going to sit and we're going to bicker and fight all the time, that's going to cause a, a number of issues. And so instead of clearly biting and devouring one another, what we ought to be doing is, is loving one another, is praying for one another. And, and how can I even say if there was sin present in a congregation, I would hope that we'd be crying one with another. And yet we have congregations that are 
dealing with bitterness and division. And clearly that, that just hinders the growth of the congregation. Listen to James 3.16. For, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Yeah, that happens in congregations when you've got division uh, and, and bitterness going on. If you go to Galatians 5, 19 and 20, and I'm not going to read the passage, but let me give you a couple of sins mentioned there. Clearly, he, he talks about hatred. You guys ever seen that between brethren? He talks about variance, which actually is the word there is strife. You've got the, the constant bickering argument, fighting going on. He uses the word emulations, which is actually jealousy. You guys ever considered the fact that most of our arguments are over jealousy? Usually. He talks about seditions or divisions. And, and here's what it comes down to. Most people, for whatever reason, who are involved in this, they just love themselves too much. And therefore, they're unwilling to humble themselves because of pride. Uh, and they're not really interested in stopping division. Clearly, we ought to be working together as Christians. And, and for some... You guys ever known someone who was never happy unless they, were, <laughs> unless they were fighting or complaining? I've known people like that. And again, there are people like that in the church. I want you to notice what Paul tells uh, the, the congregation in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. He says, For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Well, of course you are. You guys have an issue. That's why, that's why you're having this bitterness and this division with inside the congregation. You say, okay, well, clearly it is a problem, Sean. Most of us have seen it. We're willing to acknowledge it. So what do we, what do, we do? What's the solution for it? Again, it's not very complicated. I guess I have to choose to love my brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately love God above everything else. And if I understood that and I loved God that much, I would love my brothers and my sisters in the church. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. I guess what he's saying is, is, is Larry and, and everybody else that's here, I could go through and just mention all of your names, I should love you more tomorrow than I do today. I guess what he's saying is, is I should know you a little bit better tomorrow than I do today, and that would increase my love. And yet you've got congregations where people don't even know their own brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 4.8 says, And above all things, have fervent charity, love, among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. It will. It shouldn't have to, but it will. If all of us as Christians would focus on God, building a closer relationship with God, that would motivate us to be more concerned about each individual congregation. Now, with that being said, and we have to admit that many people are not, you may be standing here or sitting here and wondering to yourself, well, then how is it do I even build a closer relationship to have better love? Again, it's not complicated. What do I need to do? I need to study the Word of God daily. I need to be praying daily. I need to have a willing, obedient faith daily. I need to worry about the concerns of my brothers and sisters in Christ daily. Again, it's not complicated. We boil it down to the basics and we say this, when the congregation is made up of strong individuals, the congregation itself will be strong. And it will be exactly what God wants the church to be. Let's mention an, another problem in the church. You guys realize that some members are just going to choose to sin and some members may even choose to leave. Let, let that sink in for just a minute. 
there are some Christians who are just going to decide that they don't want to conform to the requirements that are spelled out very clearly in our New Testament. What I mean is this. They don't like what the Bible says, or they can't make themselves to come in alignment with it. Both of those would occur. There are some people who really want to who really want to be in alignment with the Scriptures, but they're weak in a number of areas and they fall short. But there are others that actually know the truth and they don't care. They're willing to just fall short of this. They're going to they're gonna reject the Word of God and go into something else. Well, what could it be? Maybe atheism, maybe agnosticism, maybe a, a false religious group, or maybe they just choose to be uh, an erring Christian. Let me give you a couple of examples. Go to 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20 if you're not there. We'll look at an example of one here. And again, guys, it, this isn't something that's sprung new on us today. This is something that the, the church has constantly deal, dealt with, and so we need to have an understanding of how to deal with them biblically. Paul, writing to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 1, 18, says, This charge I commit unto thee, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies which, which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, here's what's sad. It is thought that Hymenaeus and Alexander were once extremely beneficial to the church, and yet here we find they have rejected the faith. Why do I say that? We know it's true. There are people who were once faithful and a help to the church who, for whatever reason, have rejected the faith. They've left the, they've left the faith. They're not, they're not being faithful. They're not attending worship. They're not attending Bible studies. Some Christians just choose sin over faithfulness. Let's not pretend that it doesn't happen. Some, even worse, and this is even more damaging, because let me, let me make the distinction. There are some who say, you know what, I don't want to be a Christian, and they're just going to leave the church. And guess what? When they leave the church... They're no longer bringing their problems into the church, and they're actually at no risk of taking someone off into their air with them once they leave. I'm not condoning Christians leave. I don't want them to leave. But when they leave and say, I don't want anything to do with you, at least they're not affecting anybody else. Guess what's even worse than that? When people choose to live in air, but they want to do it wearing the mask that they're still a Christian. They want to do it in the presence of other Christians. You may say, well, do we have biblical examples of that? Yeah, we do. Go over to 3 John 1, 9. We got an example of that. It says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So here's a man who's not saying, hey, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. This is a guy that says, I'm going to go into air, and guess what? I'm still going to be active in the congregation. Not only does he, he, he clearly is described as one who is in, in air, he wants to take the Lord's church, and he wants to actually make it his church. Now, that's, that's pretty sad, because guess who he's spending all of his time with? Those that are there who are members of the church. Paul says when he visits there, he's going to publicly rebuke him. In uh, 1 John, or 3 John 1, 10. But here's my point. You've got those who are erring Christians who actually think that they're fine. They don't see a problem with what it is that they're doing. And because they don't see a problem, they're just going to stay there in the congregation and do it. We have a number of other examples we could look at. 1 Corinthians 5.1, we find there were Christians in Corinth who were involved in fornication. Can you guys believe something like that would happen within a congregation? 
We can understand as we continue to go on, the Ephesians were told in Ephesians 4.29, they were not to be involved in corrupt or perverse talking. You guys ever heard a Christian do that? It happens. Go over, to, go over to Galatians 5. Let's look at verse 19 through 21. Because Paul here warns this congregation uh, there in Galatia. And notice what he says here. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like. That wasn't the part I wanted to focus on so much. <laughs> You've got a whole bunch of them there. I want you to focus on this next part. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is Paul telling them over and over and over and over and over again, don't be involved in these things? Would you infer that some people were being involved in those things? Or at least if they were not, they need to be worried about these things so that they don't become susceptible to them. And yet, you'll have people who will say, you know, you've talked enough about this topic or that topic, minister. We don't need to cover that topic anymore. Granted, I don't think anybody wants to hear me preach 300, well, 57, 52 sermons a, a year on baptism, right? But I do, mention, I do mention baptism every week, probably at some point, don't I? We can never get away from the basics. In short, every sin that we just had mentioned, we know for a fact has taken place in congregations of the Lord's church. And I want you guys to think about this before I move on to the next topic. Many of those sins that we just mentioned were committed by men wearing suits and ties on Sunday and nice fancy dresses on Sunday who walk around acting like everything's fine and I don't have a problem much like the knight who had his arm cut off and said, it's just, a flesh, it's just a flesh wound, acting like it's not a big deal. What's the solution? Not a complicated solution. We need to teach the truth, we need to know the truth, and we need to expect ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ to adhere to the truth. It's not complicated. Listen to Galatians 6.1. And I'm just going to use the example. So let's say, that I have, let's say that I have a buddy. I'll use him for the next couple passages. My friend in the church, his name is Kent. He's a Christian. And Kent, for whatever reason, is no longer being faithful. There's nobody here named Kent, so I'm clearly making this up. But what do I do when a, when a fellow Christian is in error? Look at Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. All right, so I've got a friend who's involved in something. He needs to be restored. This isn't in your notes. Let me take it another step, just, just so you have the, the notes on your, uh, the verses on your notes there. What if it's an actual sin between two brethren? Let's say Kent and I have a problem. Well, then I need to go over to uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, and I'm going to deal with an ought between another brother, right? It talks about how to deal with that issue if it's between two people. But let's just say that, let's just say that there's a gentleman, a good friend of mine, and I know he's in sin. Well, Galatians 6.1 makes it real simple. I need to restore that guy, okay? Now, you may be saying, well, I've never had to do that. How do I restore somebody? Go to James 5.20. Again, it's not complicated. 
Let him know that he which converteth the sinner... Let me pause for a minute. Before you convert someone in the gospel, they're in a lost state, right? What about when you've got a Christian who's living in constant error? He's in a lost state. You know how you restore that guy? You convert him just like you did the person who was, at, who was in a lost state prior to obeying the gospel. Again, James 5.20. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's my goal. I want to restore him, right? The way that I restore the, the Christian who is in error is to reconvert him, get him to understand he's in a position of danger. He needs to repent of that and fix the issue. Now, what if he won't repent? What if he won't be reconverted? Let me give you one more passage and I'll move on. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. And so there's going to be a number of attempts to draw him back and restore him. Whether or not he's restored will be up to him or to her. All right. Let's talk about two more. I'll do them fairly quick. How about the breakdown of the home? Have you guys seen that affect congregations? There's so many areas. This is an entire sermon or a, a, a series of sermons we could do. But I looked this up, and I actually rounded the numbers down. We live in a nation this, as of this year that averages over 2 million marriages per year and averages over 800,000 divorces per year. And some of those people are Christians. And we don't need to spend much time on it, but I'll have you know that whether one loses a mother or whether one loses a father, studies show that the child, even an adult grown child, is severely affected through the divorce of the, of the parents. And so we know that homes are struggling. The fact is that many marriages are struggling because the requirements and the roles set forth for husbands and wives are not being carried out. Sometimes it's the husband who's doing all within his power to be faithful and hold a marriage together, and the wife doesn't want to. And sometimes it's the wife who's doing all within her power to live faithful and hold the marriage together, and the husband doesn't want to. We know additionally homes are being affected by the loss of a sense of morality, which oftentimes is being pushed upon us and upon our youth uh, by the world that's around us. Let me give you a few, few examples. Every year, and you guys know this is true, there are millions of babies being killed through abortion, which many people even consider to be perfectly acceptable uh, as far as terminating an unwanted pregnancy. Some of those people even claiming to be Christians. You could look at a number of other things. How about the outside world again trying to affect us by pushing on us homosexuality, by pushing on us transgenderism, uh, bisexual, all the other groups who are pushing this alternative lifestyle, as they would call it, onto us through the media. And while it goes even further, the groups that we would consider to be normal, just males and females, they push the idea that sex between the unmarried, again, is perfectly acceptable. It's not a problem. What I mean is simply this, the world and the media, they're affecting our youth, and not only our youth, even the adults within the church. Slowly but surely, many, many people within churches, congregations, are buying into the lies they're being told. And so families are slowly dissolving and breaking down. What's the solution to it? Well, again, it's not complicated. We preach the truth. We stand against things which really upset people, but we stand against things like adultery. 
marriage without uh, marriage and divorce without rightful cause, fornication, any other issue that seems to be tearing families apart. And really what we do is, as we're going to talk about families, we need to start from the very basis, and we need to focus in on the truth concerning marriage. If we're going to, if we're going to be worried about families, one of the first things we do is worry about the basis or the nucleus of the family. Marriage was to be a permanent bond. What do you think we should be telling our, uh, no matter who it is, whether a young or an older person when they're getting, getting married, what should we be focusing on? This is meant to be a one-time thing until one of you dies. That's how much you need to love this other person. Matthew 19, 5, and he said, For this cause shall man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. That word cleave there actually uh, is a yoking. It's a bonding together. And they twain shall be one flesh. We need to understand that. And then we need to make very clear that there's only one reason, one scriptural reason for divorce. One authorized reason to put away your spouse. Matthew 19, 9. You're familiar with it. Jesus tells them as they're tempting him here, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. That seems so simple, doesn't it, guys? To focus on the fact that the marriage should be a permanent bond. Don't let anything come in between you two. It is meant to be permanent. Be, be that concerned about it. Be focused on it. And then as we try to repulse and push back the false ideas that we see on media. Guys, it is every day I see it. Every day I see being pushed on our youth the idea that homosexuality is okay. I see it every day on TV. I see it on the news every day. We see it in the movies. We see it in TVs. We see it in print. They are pushing so many things. And so if we're going to talk about the fact that, all right, I'm going to use a word that's going to make you uncomfortable. If we're going to talk about the fact that sex is being pushed in our face, and that things that are not acceptable are being pushed in our face, we need to talk a little bit about that uncomfortable word. Because they don't have a problem talking about it. They don't have a problem flaunting it in our face. And so what we need to do is simply teach the truth on it. Should we be, in, should we be embarrassed? Let me say the word again to use the word sex regarding Christianity. Let's give you the truth on it. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed, that word coite, coitus, it's the intimate acts between a husband and wife, they are undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. What's the truth about that word that nobody wants to say? Sex? It's wonderful and it's beautiful, but it's only held for those who are, who are married. That's it. Anything else that society is trying to shove in your face that doesn't meet that description, it's not authorized. And again, I know people will get upset. We may even get, who knows, banned on YouTube for using some of the words I just used. But that's what the Bible teaches. You want, to, you want to stop the breakdown of the home? Let's take it down one even more simple step. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. You know why? Because having an understanding that we teach by the Word and we teach example through, uh, through uh, our living according to the Word, that will help keep our family pure. Listen to Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, notice this, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. You Christians, don't let this ever be mentioned you're involved in this. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking. You Christians, don't ever act like that, talk like that. That's not okay. Nor jesting, which are not convenient. He's not saying you can't joke around. 
He's saying don't joke around, which is not convenient or appropriate at the time, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger, Christians, you can't be whoremongers. That's not acceptable. Nor unclean person, that's a morally unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Simply put, homes are being tore apart, and the way that we solve this problem is by teaching the word, obeying the word, and remaining pure. And if we do that, our children will see us living that way, and they'll have the knowledge and understanding they, they can carry it out too. Let me talk for one, about one more thing. How about materialism and worldliness? I know some of these we've mentioned in other sermons. Materialism is a big problem. Worldliness that I'm tying in with it is an even bigger problem. Uh, many people are concerned about the things of this world, the ways of this world. And let me say this, there's nothing wrong with having houses, nothing wrong with having cars, nothing wrong with having new furniture, computers, things like that. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but the desire and the pursuit after those things, which many place in front of their faith, that's when they become wrong. Let's go and look at what Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen through 20. And you guys are familiar with this passage. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, why not? What could happen to those things? Notice what he says. Where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. You can lose those things, right? I can work forever to buy me a new car, and guess what happens? I can go into Walmart and come out and find it. It's gone. <laughs> I've never had that happen, but I've heard of people and known of people who have. So what should I focus on, according to Jesus? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, why should I focus on those things? What gives the answer? Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, nobody can steal that from you, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. You don't have to worry about it degrading or being stolen. So you need to focus on those. Paul, Paul deals with it this way as we talk about the things of this world and the ways of this world in Romans 12 too. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Some people are allowing stuff and the ways of the world simply to come between them and, and God. So what's the solution? Again, very simple. Let's look at what Jesus tells us. He says, in essence, you need to change your focus. Look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. If you're going to be a follower of me, you need to change your, you need to change your focus. And then he made it even more clear in Matthew six twenty-four. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You can't claim to love God and then go after and serve the ways of the world. I'd like to cover a whole lot more items than I did this morning, but I will tell you the ones that we covered, and before I quickly review them, again, let's remember the church is glorious. The church is always going to exist, but within the church will always be problems. Some, some of those problems include the fact that some congregations are slowly just physically dying. They may be even spiritually strong and alive, but they're just not growing quick enough. And so individual congregations may slowly die off. There are congregations dealing with division, dealing with bitterness, 
sometimes over doctrinal issues in which they have split, sometimes over things like carpet color. You've got some members in congregations that are willingly going to choose to sin. Some are willingly going to choose to leave. We have to know how to appropriately deal with both of those issues. You have the breakdown of the home, which is affecting a number of congregations. Oftentimes those beliefs and the teachings of the world being brought into congregations, sometimes causing the people to actually just leave the faith altogether. And sometimes they're influencing others, either discouraging them or even taking them off into their own air. You also have materialism and worldliness affecting congregations. You guys might not be big Monty Python fans, but I hope you get the point when I talk about the fact that it's just a flesh wound. Guys, we can't look at things and act like they're not happening. First it was his one arm, and he said it's just a flesh wound, and then it was the other arm. Eventually he's laying there with no arms or no legs, and he's still acting like it's no big deal. We can't let that happen to ourselves. But we also have to acknowledge this, guys. It is happening. We just don't want it to happen to us. As I draw this to a close... And I hope this didn't come across as a negative sermon, but I hope it came across as an informative sermon so that we could be prepared. As I draw this to a close, I want you to ask yourself, are you a faithful Christian? What I mean is, is did you obey the gospel the way the Bible tells you to obey the gospel? We've already covered about people going around and preaching the word. We looked at that in Acts 8.4. But there were, there were apostles, disciples, evangelists, preachers going around teaching the faith. Romans 10.17. So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. People need to know the Word of God so they know how to obey the will of God. And when people heard who Jesus was, that He was the Messiah, they needed to believe that. And if they choose not to, they'll die in their sins. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 24. And so those who heard the Word, they understood who Jesus was. I've already given you the passages that He would establish His church, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And that, that's where the sins would be remitted. We'll talk about that here in a second. When they believe that that's who Jesus was and they understand what sin does to them, they're willing to repent of it. Like Jesus commanded, Luke 13, 3 and 5. They're willing to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they're also willing to obey the commands of Christ, Mark 16, 15 and 16. And that's to be immersed in water. Just as we find in Acts 2, 38 was for the remission of sins. So if you're here right now, ask yourself, did I obey the gospel? Did I hear someone teach me the word? Did I understand who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah? Did I understand that he built a church, that there's just one church? Do I, did I understand the doctrine of that one church? What was expected of me? Did I understand what sin was? Did I repent of my sins? Did I confess Christ like the Ethiopian eunuch? Did I get immersed in water? Guys, none of those were my opinions. I gave you the verses for them, and if I did it too quick, let me sit down and give them to you again privately on a piece of paper so you can look up every one of them if you're here and you've not done that. But if you're here and you've not done that, please don't leave without talking to me. Because I will tell you, if you're not a member of the church and you die, you're not in a safe position. If you are here and you're a Christian, ask yourself, have you been faithful this week? If there are areas you've fallen short and they're private matters, please deal with them privately. Repent of them, turn from them, be faithful. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. If there are items that you may have done publicly and they brought reproach upon yourselves, you can, uh, you can ask for forgiveness publicly or make it known. Uh, maybe you just need the prayers of the congregation. And if that's the case, in either of the situations I've just mentioned, we'd love to pray for you or to help you. And you can come forward as we stand and sing a song of invitation.